I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Economics is still built around the same factors of production that Adam Smith was going on about centuries ago. Land, labor, and capital. But what about energy? You can't have machines without energy. You can't have humans working without energy. So isn't that a bit of a problem? Fortunately, Steve Keen is working on reworking the basis of economic theory and modeling by incorporating the one crucial element that's been missed out or at best marginalized. Energy. Today on the Debunking Economics podcast. So Steve is, we believe, the first economist to properly incorporate the role of energy into economic theory. And on this, he's been working with Tim Garrett, Associate Professor at the Department of Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Utah, and Matthias Griselli, Professor of Mathematics and Statistics at McMaster University in Hamilton in Canada. And today we're going to try and get up to speed on their their research. I, I guess a starting point, Steve, I mean, how do most economists treat energy? Do they ignore it? I mean, certainly if you look at the, the, the Cobb-Douglas model, which goes back to the 1920s, uh, which could be seen as being a little, little out of date. But, I mean, if we look at the two basic factors of production, labour and capital, uh, I mean, that doesn't even consider feeding your workers or powering your machines. Capital is magically self-perpetuating, isn't it? Oh, there's all sorts of issues into the definition of capital. And look, if you go back far enough, and that I mean, my age is old enough these days, when I did my undergraduate, they would talk about factors of production in your first year macro, macro or micro course, and it would be land, labour, uh, enterprise, and capital, yeah. four of them. Now, uh, as time has gone on, the neoclassicals have slowly, uh, even though they, they will say if you put them under stress, which is basically asking them a question, uh, put them under stress, they'll say that we, we still incorporate that. That's implicitly in... In the in land. Capital. Then, you know, the capital. Then, then, you know, oh. Land is like capital. It's easy to make a new piece of land. Just, you know, go and do and dredge what the Dutch, do, what the Dutch have done. I'm, I'm sitting on a piece of newly made land 500 years old. Um, but it's because it's nonsense. The, the land has got fundamentally different uh, uh, aspects to it than the machinery. You can, and, and also, in that sense, so does enterprise. Uh, but, it, sure. but wouldn't they wouldn't they say, say that land energy is part of that land though? So it's a, it's a land but, choice, isn't it? Whether you have a, 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 a coal power plant or, or crops for fuel or solar or wind farms, they all take up land, and the availability of that land and the ability to extract energy from it determines the, the price of that energy as an input, well, doesn't it? That's they they will waffle around it, but there, that's that actually takes me back to my my favourite group of economists, uh, which is actually the physiocrats who predate Smith. And when you see what they were talking about coming from rural France, at that stage, France was, uh, UK had already begun an industrialization process using peat, uh, wind power to some extent, mainly uh, water power. And, and so there are manufacturing processes, certainly in, in Scotland, before the intervention of the, uh, of the, uh, st- the steam engine by Watt. But at the time that uh, that, that uh, Smith was was working in in Scotland and 
the physiocrats were working in France, France was far more rural. And so the, the physiocratic idea was that all production comes from the land, all wealth comes from the land. And their argument was that the land was what they called fertile because it got, quote unquote, the free gift of nature. Now, the free gift of nature is another way to describe energy. And in fact, when you look at the linguistic history of the word energy, it was only invented by, I've forgotten who, but an English polymath in 1809. So you can actually say the free gift of energy is the physiocrats saying all wealth comes from energy. And they were right. Now, Smith jumps into the window. Uh, he, the, the, the beauty about working from the agricultural point of view, that's obvious mm. that when you plant a seed and you get back a, a plant, one seed becomes the 10,000 seeds and, and on goes the process. So the object is reproducing itself. And the only thing you can say that's actually helping is that is nature is doing something for free, which is precisely the way that the physiocrats spoke about it. Now, Smith comes over and he then says, no, it's not, it's not the land that's producing this. It's the, it's the division of labor which we are starting to see, of course, in you know, the classic example of the pin, the, the pin factory that Smith gives in The Wealth of Nations. But it was much more obvious that something was coming out of manufacturing, uh, which the physiocrats described as a sterile sector. They said they simply took whatever um, wealth was created courtesy of the free gift of nature in agriculture and converted it to something else. So the, the stylized model that's the most famous physiocratic model is the tableau economique, uh, by Canet back in the late 1700s, predating Smith. And in that table, he had, um, with his idea of what was being produced in the manufacturing sector, were carriages. So the, the you know, uh, uh, corn was produced in the in the agricultural sector. That's where the wealth was generated. That's that's where the wealth, real wealth, came from. Uh, some of that corn was then used to, to convert into carriages, which of course you were selling to the proprietor class. Um, so in that sense, the physiocrats had not only had it right on what, what the source of wealth was, which was converting energy into useful work, mm. they also had a class division, uh, which included the, 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 the proprietors on top benefiting out of the, the taking care of that, that uh, not surplus, but the, they were the main beneficiaries surrounding the land. Of the of the exploitation of the free gift of labour, uh, free gift of land, and Smith gives us the idea of the, the labour and division of labour, and we call it the labour theory of value, and then the neoclassical response to that. We've wasted about two hundred bloody years. <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm not joking. I mean, that's when I'm, when I write my magnum opus, I'm going to be calling Smith the person to lead economics astray, not the foundation. Of the yeah, and um, yet, yeah. if when you look at this this link between growth and energy, I mean. Economists might not realise it, but I mean, certainly the uh, international markets, investors realise it. Don't, uh, well, you, you, yeah. I know you don't like that well, word, investors, but if you look at, you know, if if energy consumption falls, and we're, you know, we're seeing a, 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 a fall in energy demand right now, the, the expectation is, isn't it, that the economy is going to weaken, that GDP is is going to fall, and conversely, you know, we're seeing all this concern over China trade talks uh-huh. failing. Demand for oil is falling as a result of that because it's an obvious relationship. There's less demand for stuff, less energy needed to make stuff. So the markets react to that. Yeah, and then that's a sensible reaction. Whereas the economic theory, if you look at how the, the Cobb-Douglas production function, which is the way neoclassicals, the, the simple way they modify, they, they use what they call uh, continental elasticity substitution functions as well, which are much more complicated and which can map between a fixed ratio of labor to capital to a variable one by changing uh, exponents. But the... Um, the fundamental argument is still this Cobb-Douglas production function that you take labour and capital 
and combine them and you produce output. And if they try to bring energy in, then what the first neoclassicals doing this did was say, well, this labor is a factor of production, capital is a factor of production, energy is a factor of production. And we add, you know, here we have L, K and E as the, as the arguments to the function and the rate that we uh, apply, which is where we work out what, what exponents we put on top of to these, to these inputs to maintain the sensible concept of, of, uh, of, uh, a constant returns to scale, meaning if you double all inputs, you don't, you, you, if you double inputs, you double all outputs. It's a, so therefore, you, you, there has to be a limit on the value of your exponents. And the value they'd use for energy is the proportion of the uh, industry, uh, the GDP, which can, you can source to uh, energy. And in America, it's about 7%. What it argued effectively was 70% of change in output therefore came from the manu- from, from labour, 23%, or say 63 to 70%, let's stick with 63%, 63% came from um, labour, 30% from capital and 7% from energy. Mm. And I saw one, one of the few times I'll quote Larry Summers favourably is that he was having, in, in talking about his secular stagnation ex- explanation for the aftermath of the financial crisis, he made a, a crack about how a bunch of Chicago Economists, if, if the energy sector shut down completely, they'd be writing papers explaining, well, this can only affect most 7% of GDP. Yeah. Of course, if energy shut down effectively, that'd be the end of the economy. So, um, th- and, that's and, and if we move to automation, then then you get, you're getting rid of the, the labor element out of all of that by and No, large. no, no. They, they, they can't even do that because they relate the scope the exponents to the share of wages and in, 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 in national income. So, even though that's declined, it's still of the order of 60%. Right. So, they're they're still arguing that most of the change in output comes from labour. Now, I always regard that these as something seriously wrong with these ideas, and I wasn't happy with the idea of adding energy as the third factor because uh, it, it implied you could set a bomb off uh, in, in, a, in a factory and that would improve uh, output. Uh, you know, if you add, add labour as an independent factor and capital as an independent factor and energy as an independent factor, then you've got a worker using his or her hands, a machine... Um, you know, cutting you know, cutting pieces of metal in a very careful way, and an explosion didn't make any sense at all. So my simple insight was to say, well, uh, land without labor without capital, uh, labor without energy is a corpse. Capital without energy is a sculpture. Uh, so rather than having energy as the third eye and independent, energy was an input into the other two. Very very different forms of energy, of course, but labor takes energy and creates useful work. Machinery takes an energy and creates useful work, and the two are necessary working together. But the energy is an input to both, and if the energy is zero, then the output is zero. Right, but they have constraints, of course, don't they? So the yeah. amount of food is determined by land, and you know, assuming the sun continues to shine, uh, the amount of land that we've got we're, we're giving over to crops and food production. Uh, and, and I guess land, you know, we do get to the, the importance of land again because that also applies for how you use that land for the creation of energy, for, yeah. for to, land, to power your land, machines. Yeah, you can actually see land in that sense as, as a form of uh, a form of energy, and mm. and that's or an energy recipient, an energy processor, because the land is receiving the sun, and the sun, which we don't, nobody, so far as I know, built. Um, the, that that is why you talk about being free energy because you didn't pay for the actual source of the energy in the first instance. So isn't, so, so, isn't yeah. it, so we get back to that, you know, that rudimentary model of land, labour and capital. Doesn't, isn't, is, you know, my point earlier on, isn't land covering energy in that case? It is, it is but not as explicitly. And mm. that's why I'm saying if you've got to explicitly have it inside there. And that's what we've done. And that's my my own contribution to that. The contribution from, so what, what that meant was I, 
rather than saying uh, labour and capital and energy are independent factors of production, which is the way it's put in a Cobb-Douglas framework, or saying that um, land, labour and capital together produce output, which is the approach that uh, post-Keynesians have used and fundamentally see a a constant relationship between labour and capital, saying labour and capital both take in energy, and the simplest way to illustrate that is to say that the labour output, the energy output of labour is the number of workers times the number of calories they process times the efficiency with which that um, work mm. is turned into useful work. And, <coughs> pardon me, machinery, similar thing, but much greater scale. Right. So actually putting in specific inputs, price inputs for, for energy into the model. Well, that, that's, that's a later stage, but the, the starting point is simply acknowledging it in the first place and mm. saying that the output of machinery is, in the inverted commas, number of machines, times the energy processing capability of each representative machine at a particular point in time, times the efficiency with, 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 that, with which that's converted into useful work. And that then says that out, what, what production is fundamentally doing is taking advantage of free energy to produce useful work and turning that useful work in energy terms into widgets. And that's what we've, that was my contribution to this, um, to this uh, innovation. But I, wasn't, I was the first economist to do it properly. Not the first person. And that's where Tim Garrett's work comes in. <coughs> Pardon me, man. <coughs> and so Tim's uh, was approaching it from a thermodynamic point of view. His, his main interest, and you're going to love this, is the uh, mathematics of snowflakes. Right. Okay. So he works at how do snowflakes form. And that, of course, is a serious question in meteorology, and it's a serious question in climate analysis as well. And what he basically said was that the a snowflake starts to form when a bit of dust interacts with a bit of moisture in the air and then forms a tiny crystalline structure. Now, all the beautiful snowflakes that you see in photographs of snowflakes are one in a billion of the actual snowflakes. When Tim, Tim actually takes the real thing, they're nothing like these gorgeous little uniform structures we see. But what he, what he saw was the way that they grew involved the scale of the interface. So if you think about the interface to a, a droplet of water, uh, the droplet of water with some of the dust inside it that is in, under cold enough conditions to turn into a snowflake, uh, that has a interface, its, its volume is R cubed, radius of the snowflake cubed, its area is R squared, but it, it turns out, and I, I do not understand this, this is thermodynamics behind it rather than um, any you know, sim- simple scales, the, the effective interface is the, is the length of the snowflake. And what that gave him is an argument that the length of the interface between an energy source and an energy sink is what enables a snowflake to form. So he applied exactly the same logic to manufacturing and said that what's going on is we have an energy source, which is um, you know, coal deposits, oil deposits, et cetera, et cetera, uh, an interface with society, meaning we have the mines that exploit these products and mm-hmm. you know, enable us to turn them into energy sources for our machines, society, which is then powered by this um, effectively waterfall of energy from where it is at high potential to where we've taken advantage of that that gap at a lower potential. That's where the economy operates and the economy needs this waterfall of energy to be falling in all the time to enable that work to be done. And then uh, to actually enable this useful work as well, we've got to dump that waste into a lower level again, which is the environment. 
And so you get a combination between the energy source, the productive use of that giving a society, and dumping it into the environment from a thermodynamic point of view. And that Tim did that, I think, back in about 2012 or maybe even earlier. And that sort of makes sense. I don't know too much about the law of thermodynamics, so I get a little losty. I mean, in my mind, I've always thought the law of thermodynamics, and this is the extent of it, so don't laugh. But I just thought this is the science's way of saying we can't have perpetual motion. Uh, you know, we can't we, we can't have a self-sustaining planet. We've got the sun, which provides an input, but it's not going to burn forever, but it, hopefully it's going to burn for long enough. Uh, but we also create pollution back on our planet or we create uh, carbon and our atmosphere can only can only hold so much. So I, I sort of look at it as a as a, as a bit like you're saying, a system of of inputs. But it you know, but it it's it, it can't create forever because there's limitations, just as you can't have perpetual motion. Yeah, and that's and that's the, um, the, the the point of coming from a thermodynamic point of view. You automatically acknowledge that straight away that you can't have production without waste. Yeah, and and that is like when I teach my students about it, I fundamentally start from a point of view of, a, of the idea of a potential energy, saying that if you have a waterfall which is powering a, a, a water mill, then for the waterfall to work, the waterfall, the height of the waterfall must be higher than the f- f- height of the of the lake into which it's pouring. Mm. If the height's the same, there's no potential energy to be exploited and you won't be able to turn the water mill and you won't be able to produce any energy and you won't be able to do any work. And then equally, uh, once, you've, once you've got that done, the amount of energy you can exploit is not the entire available energy because if the entire available energy, the, the depth of the, the well into which the water was falling would need to hit the center of the planet. Uh, so there's, 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 in that sense, there's wasted potential energy. You could measure the potential energy relative to the core of the planet uh, versus what you actually get, and it's a damn sight less. And the same thing applies if you think about a, a, like a nuclear power plant or a coal-fired power plant or anything of that nature. To exploit the energy, they've got to dump the waste heat back into the environment. So you're operating at, you know, a thousand degrees Celsius, let's say, yeah. uh, that'd be a pretty high temperature. Then you've got to, to actually, if you've had it completely sealed, the whole thing would even out to a thousand degrees centigrade and you wouldn't have any, you know, there'd be nothing turning. So you've got to be dumping the waste heat and what you're dumping into an environment which has a background in terms of Kelvin uh, to Kelvin temperature, about 300 Kelvin. So you can exploit 700 Kelvin of your energy, not 1,000 Kelvin. Mm. And therefore, of course, if you're doing it, if you're dumping into a reservoir, which is not particularly large compared to your source, and this is the problem for power stations using water to cool the energy, then uh, you're going to raise the local temperature. And as you raise the local temperature, you reduce the efficiency of your energy extraction. And this is all so far removed, isn't it, from the Cobb-Douglas model? Unless you unless you were to say, well, okay, <laughs> land, actually, let's call land the environment and let's have some sort of feedback loop where actually the more you produce, the uh, the more you're degrading that, that, that environment. Yeah, so it's not a finite result. Yeah, and this is, again, why I look at what neoclassicals have done in terms of the um, uh, their ecological modelling, and they've really done bugger all about the production side of the function. They simply have a damage function dividing a Cobb-Douglas production function. And there's no relationship between the damage and the capital goods themselves or the labour itself. Production goes on willy-nilly. That's certainly the case in Nordhaus's model. A couple of the others are slightly more complicated, but they haven't put energy in in any essential way. Mm. So I wasn't going to tackle climate change until I'd worked out a way of doing it. And that's what I did now two or three years ago. And now working with Tim, courtesy of a grant from the uh, Economic and Social Research Council of the UK of £60,000 mediated by the National Institute for Economic and Social Research, which are the ones who are who are managing the rebuilding macroeconomics uh, project of the ESRC. So the grant, you know, they've got to acknowledge my sponsors and, 
and happy to do it. That's where the where the work where the payment came together to enable myself and Matthias and Tim to spend a week trying to brainstorm and see how we can take them from the basic initial ideas to some models of uh, economic and production and waste. Right. So this is a model. Basically, coming up with a new equation, in effect, a new economic model that is more more realistic in in representing how things really work. Getting that relationship between energy use use and pollution and uh, economic growth is that the yeah. basic yeah. idea? Yeah, look, we, we, we did this. We, the background that both Mateus and I have, we both work using what's called the Goodwin model, uh, which sees production uh, as it's called the Leontief production function. And that's the common one used by post-Keynesian economists is that the output is not this easily you know, variable inputs of labor and capital, which is the neoclassical idea, but you can say output is labor productivity multiplied by labor, which is also equal to uh, the utilization of, 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 of the amount of your machinery utilizing multiplied by the amount of machinery you have divided by capital output ratio. And we simply took that and said, well, how do you, let's put this in energy terms, the energy input of labor is the number of workers times the calories times the efficiency of conversion. Ditto for machines, of course, a, a much larger number and unbounded in the sense that if you can make a machine take in more energy, then it'll produce, you know, so finding a machine, say, as a, as a, a rail engine, you'll get more, in, uh, any, more uh, goods and services out of that being transportation in that case, if you can get more energy into the train and comparing the trains today of trains to back in the days of the James, the James Watt engine, obviously that's what we've done. So the major source of increase in production is increasing harnessing of energy. And that's just a more realistic start. But, of course, it leads to all sorts of complications and how you yeah. try to put them into a math, into economic model. Yeah, because it's not – I mean, that, that relationship between uh, the output and uh, the inputs in terms of energy use is not – it's not a linear relationship, is it? I mean, if you, if you, if you, if you stop feeding someone uh, – like, the more you feed someone, they don't become more productive. And in fact, there's a point at which, you know, you can – if you only feed them half as much, they're still going to be useless because they're going to have difficulty getting out of bed. And it's, it's the same with machines, isn't it? That, you know, the, you're going to get to a point where uh, – Perhaps you need a small increment of energy use because the machines get more efficient, perhaps because of their size, so you get economies of scale, or because we've made big developments, big strides, like we have with uh, uh, aircraft, for example, doing the same job but using less fuel, that sort of thing. Well, that's the, there's all sorts of issues that turn up there. But, yes, the fundamental thing about labour, and this is why another reason to reject the labour theory of value um, and, and that is that the energy output of labor is pretty heavily capped at something of the order of 100 calories, which is about the power of an old-fashioned light bulb. That's about the amount of energy a worker can put in. And thinking in terms of unskilled workers, we try to find as workers who could be trained to use the current machinery but couldn't, manuf- they couldn't invent the manu- machinery themselves uh, or make the machinery. That's mm. that's the um, the definition of unskilled labour, and the output is, is a, a, of the order of eighty between between seventy and one hundred and twenty watts. Uh, so about about. The power and I can range. vouch for that. I can vouch for that because when I'm there, pacing and sweating at the gym, and uh, you do that for half an hour, you get to the end, you're exhausted, and then it tells you how much you've used, and basically, yeah, you've used enough to power that light bulb for half an that's hour. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Now, on the other hand, if you get a, a machine, if you can get a, if you can produce a machine that does the same mechanical motions as the, as the worker was doing previously, then you start off with a particular level of power you can get into the machine, but you, know, you hit your, get your technologies at it over time, and that rises dramatically. So if you, the, the, my favorite comparison of the, 
amount of what that then says is the amount of output is related to the amount of energy. And this is actually a point where my stuff and Tim's differs in a way which is extremely important. So I want to come back to that. But I got a relationship, therefore, between the amount of energy going in and the amount of GDP. And if you think about the, the my archetypal machine from Adam Smith's time is, is of course, the, the James Watt steam engine, which was ma- manufactured about seven years after, I think, Smith wrote The, the Wealth of Nations. Um, that machine, when it was put into a, a transportation device, uh, used about 10 tonnes of energy per day, 10, 10 tonnes of coal in that case. The My, fa- you know, my, my fanboy, uh, one of my two fanboy effects, Elon Musk, the Falcon 9, I think it's the Falcon 9, not the Falcon 9 Heavy. The Falcon 9 Heavy uses nine tonnes of fuel a second. So mm. what you've got is a you know, 25,000 times increase in the amount of energy being devoted into the service called transportation. And that's what I see as the main form of the increase in wealth for however time. So there must be other factors, though. I mean, we can't dismiss all those uh, all those other factors, like the the role of well, labour you labour you converting to to energy, but land uh, uh, capital obviously is still still a factor because you, you, you're powering something and you've got to have money for that. Something to power. Yeah. You've got to have something to power. And entrepreneurship, which is the other one, isn't it? Which is basically how efficiently you're, you know, you're using all of these tools. No, no, entrepreneur. That's actually one of my favourite distinctions between entrepreneur and a manager was made by Schumpeter, and he said that uh, an entrepreneur is like somebody who who builds a road, and a, ma- a manager is somebody who walks down it. So entrepreneurship is a totally different thing. It's it's changing how you do something rather than uh, yeah. But I um, think that's sort of my point that that that, yeah. that that you know how efficiently you're doing stuff is de- determined by entrepreneurship. And uh, so that's the, that they're still a factors, and somehow they, they've they've got yeah. to be part of the model as well. You you don't yeah. just have a, a piece of equipment and uh, and energy inputs, and you just keep on powering that machine. Someone's got to be there to say there's got to be a better way of doing this. Yeah, but also like one thing I keep on getting from people whenever I raise this issue of using energy as the fundamental cause of production is, well, why? What about uh, um, computer software services and stuff like that? Uh, what's the relationship? Uh, what about an uh, artist? Is is it? Does Picasso's art cost more than your local uh, street painter because Picasso paints the walls faster, et cetera, et cetera? That's the second or third order issue. The first thing is explaining how you get the walls painted. Uh, you know, there, there, there are parts of it, and this is where Ricardo is very good in saying some things simply aren't priced courtesy of the cost of production mm. because they are unique. They can't be reproduced. So we're talking about reproducible objects, not unique ones. Yeah. And then, and then, and therefore, we're saying a vast amount of what you economics attempts to explain. It's left out the fundamental causal component, which is the role of energy. And once you've got energy in there, then the laws of thermodynamics are essentially part of your economic thinking. And the the best best summary of those was a joke. Uh, I'm thinking of Kerouac as the name of the person who dreamed up the joke, but it, it may be Ginsburg. It was Alan Ginsburg who summarised the laws of thermodynamics as the, the first law was: uh, you can't win. The second law was you can't even break even. And the third law is you can't leave the game. And that basically says that you can neither create nor destroy energy. You simply have as much as exists. Uh, when, you, uh, when you create useful work out of it, you necessarily generate waste, so you can't break even. The only way you could break even is find someone who won't dump the waste energy in the universe, which is the t- temperature of zero, of zero Kelvin, which is absolute zero, and there is no such place. So those are the laws of thermodynamics. An essential part of us in terms of looking at production on the surface of the planet is that the waste we are dumping is going into the environment, and that is a very direct link between economics and ecology, which we really haven't had before. 
So that's sort of like the terminal velocity, really, isn't it, on consumption? We, you know, we because the sun is there, we can uh, we we can find lots of lots of energy, but uh, even if we find a way to perpetuate our energy needs, we still won't win because we've got to find somewhere to dump all the stuff. And that that's we're there's a beautiful there's a beautiful paper. And the neoclassicals, whenever I raise this paper, say, "Oh, that's so far in the distance; it doesn't matter." Yada yada yada. I'm sick of them using that excuse because they're the only bloody economic school that uses uh, inter- integrates the utility maximising of a, of a of a representative Asian over infinity. So I'm sorry, guys. If you use infinity in your arguments, you can't say, "Oh, well, that's that's too far in the future." Mm. Uh, there's the paper called "Finite Physicist Meets Experimental Economist," where a uh, uh, and a, a prominent uh, physicist met a, a similarly prominent economist and had a debate over were there any constraints to growth on the planet. And the economist basically thought innovation and technology would get around the problem. The uh, physicist pointed out that even if you leave out global warming, in other words, if the temperature, the, the base temperature of the planet was what it would be in the absence of any greenhouse gases, which is minus 18 Kelvin, 18 degrees Celsius below zero, that would be the temperature if there was no greenhouse get effect at all. Uh, if we're doing manufacturing on that surface, then simply by the second law of thermodynamics, about the amount of waste being generated to produce uh, output, given this relationship between energy and GDP, which is part of the logic that I've got. Tim, by the way, makes it relationship between integrated GDP and energy, which is an important difference. Um, even if you just, just extrapolate forward, no greenhouse gases, I think in about something like about 250 years, the surface temperature of the earth would be hot enough to boil water. Yeah. Well, that's, okay. that'd save on kettles. Uh, it'd save on kettles and it'd save on humans. <laughs> and save well. on humans too. Well, I mean, isn't the reason behind it, and to, you can pick on that point about, uh, what did you say it was integrated G- GDP? That's Jim's point. We'll come back to one. Yeah, but let's get back to that in a second. But just, I mean, the reason why I think uh, a neoclassic economists will say, "Well, that's a you know that's a problem for the future that we don't need to consider," is probably because it is so difficult to model, isn't it? Because you're looking at a, a, a lag factor in all of this, which economic models aren't so good at, is it? That uh, well, you know, what we, the, the benefits we're getting today is going to impact variables in a decade or two, which is very difficult to model. I would have thought. It's all, but it's also leaving out feedbacks. I mean, again, yeah. you would think these neoclassical uh, climate models include feedback effects of the waste being generated on the capacity produced. They don't include them at all. Mm. Uh, now, what I'm saying is we then part of the reason they've got into that mindset is they've had the Cobb Douglas production function, you know, labour and capital in, magic and bang goods coming out the other side. It's labour and capital energy processing and goods coming out the other side. Therefore, you've got waste. You simply have to deal with the existence of waste. They've, they've magic wandered away in their minds. And uh, what we're doing now is saying, well, here's an absolutely integral link between energy production and waste. And, and, and therefore, you can't make that mistake of leaving waste out of the process or thinking you can eliminate waste by the quick sort of pricing. You can't, you can't eliminate the second law of thermodynamics by getting your equilibrium price right. It's still going to be there. So you're working on a, on, on a model that's going to provide uh, evidence behind all of this. I guess you're taking a lot of inputs, whatever you can, to develop this model. And how, how far along the line are you on that? Yeah, not, 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 not a great start, only one week so far, because what we <laughs> basically had was three people. About a whole week? God, what, yeah, whole week, what, what, what have you guys been doing? Well, I know, yeah. Um, I mean, this is one of the benefits. Of the, what the NISR grant is letting us do is collaborate, get together and just focus on just one issue for a week. Nothing else gets discussed apart from where we're going to go for a hike in the Utah landscape afterwards. So it was very, very productive in that sense. But this was the attempt for the first three of us to show what our approaches are. So my approach about saying energy is an input to labour and capital and fundamentally it's the 
uh, energy processing capability of machinery that explains GDP. Uh, Matthias has taken, and this is going to sound egotistical, he's taken what he, he has called the Keen model, uh, which is my combination, my extension of Richard Goodwin's model with labour, labour and capital fighting each other to also include bankers in the mathematics. He's taken that as a foundation and built an alternative to the Nordhaus-style models that rather than having a Cobb-Douglas production function and neoclassical concepts at the core, still uses the same damage functions they used, but uses the Keen model, which involves this cyclical dynamic between labour capital and bankers and can have debt-induced breakdowns. And he effectively shows that uh, under fairly realistic parameter values, if you have uh, companies having to uh, invest in energy, in, 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 in pollution diminishing um, investments, um, then with a sufficient accumulation of waste in the environment, uh, if, they're, if they're going to borrow money to go and do that, they're going to go bankrupt over time. You'll have, a, you'll have a, what they call the bad equilibrium in the Keen model of effectively an infinite debt ratio, uh, zero employment and zero wages share. Um, there's another outcome as well, which is similar, which has um, zero wages share but still positive employment, which is, means total immiserization of workers. So that's that's the dynamic that, that Matthias has, has achieved working with Gail Girard in particular in France. And uh, so he's, he had explained his model to us. I then explained my approach and then Tim explained his. And what we then decided to do was to start working on the, the Goodwin, the simple Goodwin model, the model that's the basis of the of the Keen model, which has output um, being divided by labour between labour and capital, and generate a model um, using my energy arguments. But the, and we've got a reasonable distance in doing that, so we've got a good one model now involving energy as the major input rather than rather than uh, than labour and capital without energy, and it generates the cycles, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We're now trying to fit it to data, and we're finding various curly issues in doing that. So that was the first. That's the first week. So we, we hope to have a joint paper uh, with a, a Goodwin model uh, of, of energy production. Mm. And as well as with that, because we have energy the input, we have the gap between the energy input and the useful work achieved. That is the waste. So we've got a direct link now to the, the ecological issue. Yeah. And there's a question of fitting it to data. Now, you made a good point about talking about Picasso because at the end of, because at the end of all of this, you know, what society really needs to do is, is shift to a point where we, uh, we treasure quality perhaps more than uh, consumption. And I love your, your point about Picasso because, you know, you could have, uh, I've got, I had this vision of Picasso being approached by a neoclassic economist saying, you know, well, this stuff you're producing is really good. But, you know, if you could, uh, if you could turn out uh, 10 or 15 paintings a day, then, uh, you know, we could, we, we could hit the market at a lower price and you get a much higher turnover. And uh, Steve Keen would be standing on his shoulder saying, yeah, but look, he can only average 100 watts per hour. Uh, so, you know, there's a limit to how many good paintings he can produce. And sort of like that, that would, that's sort of like the economist approach to art, isn't it? You know, get the turnover, get the price right and uh, maximise uh, maximize your income as a, as, as a way of doing that. But we are left with, a you know, a load of shit paintings at the end of the day rather than masterpieces. And we need to sort of... <laughs> Perhaps society needs to think more about how do we create those masterpieces and lead a quality of life that is less 
Um, I'm rambling, I know, but it's using less. That is using less energy, but but we're still getting the quality of life right. You're answering an important point. This is a question of what to what extent can output be decoupled from energy? In other words, what efficiency Mm. gain? Because you still you've still you've got to have energy as the input. The question is how efficiently do you convert that energy into useful work? And that if you think imagine things like light bulbs again, uh, then if you look, it's not just useful work. It's it's actually quality of life. But yeah, but that, yeah, but that's that's just um, let's put, put some parameters on quality of life. Quality of life for an incandescent light bulb was far higher than quality of life from a candle because there's far more energy coming out of the yeah. uh, out of the incandescent light bulb than there was coming out of the, of the candle. So you need you know, a thousand. I, I imagine you'd need a hundred candles to to be equivalent to virtually 100, 100 watt globe, it would be something of that order in terms of the amount of light emitted. But of course, an incandescent light bulb, predominantly, as, as does a candle, predominantly outputs heat, not light. So the quality issue is saying, well, let's get down to the number of photons we need. And what we've done over time is go from the incandescent to the, to the neon, to the, um, um, I've forgotten the, the, the intermediate ones, those sort of wrapped up neon uh, globes, to LED lights. And LEDs are now tuned to particular frequencies and are far more efficient and can ultimately, after they've worked out how to get into producing, producing the blue light was the hard bit, I think. Blue or green was the, was the real colour challenge. Uh, you've now got LED lights which use far less energy to produce exactly the same uh, well, the relative amount of, of lighting. Mm. So, but that's that efficiency gain is gone. We're not going to find anything more efficient than LEDs. And when you look over um, a whole range of manufacturing processes, the processes themselves are pretty much running at the limits of the laws of thermodynamics in terms of the how efficiently can you convert energy into useful work and, and minimise the waste. What's what's the, what's the ratio there? Um, but of course, like in transportation, a huge amount of the of the uh, energy we produce is using moving objects that are far too fast, uh, like cars, so far too heavy, rather. Most of the energy is going to moving the device carrying what you're trying to move, yeah. not the device itself. Massive waste. Yeah, and and they're also bumper to bumper, courtesy of bad of bad road design. So mm. there are efficiency gains, but fundamentally, what's been found is called the Jevons paradox. And this is William Stanley Jevons, one of the inventors of neoclassical economics, also did some useful stuff. Um, he actually worked in the coal industry in Australia, of all things, at one point. And one of his insights was that if you find a more efficient way of using energy, rather than reducing energy use, you'll simply redistribute the energy elsewhere. So in energy efficiency gains in some places have ended up using energy more in other locations. And overall, there has not been a decoupling of energy from GDP. And this is the, the, the this is one reason that if you think about the level of optimism the three of us had, um, I'm I'm the middle of the road between Mateus and Tim. Tim basically thinks we're going to go through a, a, a you know ecological collapse. We won't do anything to stop the problem until the thing falls over, and then whether we survive or not is uh, a question of predator prey dynamics, not uh, not a not a question of human ingenuity. Matthias is looking at all the policies we can bring about to try to improve the efficiency and to reduce the energy usage as well. And I'm sitting between the two of them, thinking, I hope we do it in time. Uh, so it was an intriguing, uh, not clash of philosophies, but clash of expectations about uh, how much humanity can avoid the heat uh, and energy problems, it's in pollution problems, it's got itself into. 
So, uh, so when do we see some out? We were talking about inputs and outputs, uh, <clears throat> Steve. When are we going to see the outputs? Then you've had okay. You know. Well, first set of papers are likely to come out in the next three months. I've got to give a present. I've got to give two presentations in the next uh, two months. One to the OECD on averting systemic collapse. I'm giving that talk in. I think it's 17th and 18th of September. And then the first of the NISR conferences about their working groups, I'll get a paper there on the, on the literally the next two days in Edinburgh. Um, so that'll be the first draft of these papers. Um, and then the big thing we have to work on next time round is to work out whether we can make Tim's approach consistent with mine. And that that's the important point to, to finish on on this one, I think. That Tim, what Tim um, has as his relationship is not between... GDP and energy, but between wealth and energy. And what he talks about as, as wealth is the integral of GDP over time. So he then has a relationship between the integral of GDP and energy consumption, which means uh, a relationship between GDP and change in any consumption. And in his way of thinking about GDP, what GDP is effectively is growing a network, the, the network being the overall economy, making it larger is what we call GDP. Now, of course, it can get smaller. So in his vision, GDP can be negative. And I think that's an extremely interesting idea. And we have, what we're really going to do is go through working the two different approaches, see the extent to which we can make them consistent, point out where the, where the differences are. Uh, is there a way, for example, to increase the depreciation rate in my model to meet what Tim gets as a relationship between uh, the integral of, of, of GDP over time? We'd, we'd have break down his... Uh, his idea of an ag, he, just, he doesn't distinguish between investment and consumption. He simply treats everything we do as what he calls big curly C. Um, and that's the, the, the big curly C is the integral of all the, all the activities we're doing over time, including what we call investment and consumption. Can we make the two to fit together and fit the data? He gets an incredibly tight relationship between change in, uh, between the level of uh, wealth, the, integra- the integral of mm. GDP over time, and energy consumption. And it's yeah, because like a, rich, very, people, very rich people consume more energy than poor also, people. No, 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 wealth, wealth in the aggregate level. This is right. what he's saying is what we're doing is expanding the wealth of the, of the economy and to get an increase in that wealth, a bit like for a child, the, the consumption of energy has to be greater than the out, than the. Uh, the output, the output of energy, you've got to accumulate a bit of it. That's what gives you growth in a child. Uh, he said what we call GDP is fundamentally the same thing, growth in the wealth of the economy. Now, if you starve somebody, they can go backwards. Right. And therefore, you've got to basically live off, live off the China in that sense. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the dangers he sees with, the, with his model, which he calls No Way Out, and it's a publicly accessible paper. He explains the way he derived this uh, argument about you know we're sort of waterfall of energy from a energy source of you know carbon based energy down to society and then from that down to the environment those steps he explains the logic of deriving it and when he fits it to the data between 1980 and uh, 2010 he finds an incredibly tight relationship I think of the order I think I, I think it's about um, point zero seven milliwatts per American dollar something like that, when, when American dollar is standardized to 2010 prices. And the correl- <coughs> correlation coefficient's enormous and the standard deviation's tiny. So he's got a very strong empirical support for his relationship between wealth and, and energy and therefore between change in wealth, what he, we would call GDP, mm. and change in energy. That, 
complicating that model even further, though, would be the would would be the issue about income disparity within within an economy as well. Because if you get the very if you've got a, a lot of very rich people in an economy, like let, let's take for example uh, an American princess who's married into the uh, into the uh, into the British royal family who <laughs> preaches everybody about uh, uh, sustainability, but then uh, takes a private jet to New York for a baby shower. Uh, you wouldn't get someone living in a in a council flat uh, in Teddington, for example, uh, using that sort of energy up. And that's an important element of it as well, because again, you get what are the various mathematical distributions you can get that give you high levels of inequality, like log normal and power law distributions as well. And that comes can fairly naturally be added to an energy-based model because based on the laws of thermodynamics, you do get that sort of energy distribution in, in particles. Imagine particle oxygen. Uh, if you imagine the air in the room you're in, uh, molecules bouncing off each other, there will be those sorts of uh, distributions and energy turning up there fairly naturally. So it's a much, the thermodynamics thing gives you a much more natural link to inequality than the neoclassical does, uh, and, and for that matter, the post-Keynesian. So there's lots of, lots of potential areas to take this research in. We just aren't going to get a huge amount done in three weeks, but we're going to get as much as we can done over that time. expecting you to solve all the problems of the world in three weeks and we'd have a new way of operating and uh, world governments would be taking it on, on board before Christmas. Am I going to be disappointed? Oh, I damn. S- I suspect Sorry so. about that. <laughs> all very worthwhile. Uh, at least we're making some headway. Great to talk, Steve. Welcome, Matt. It's important stuff, isn't it? Even if you believe that climate change is bunkum, as a small minority do, uh, you have to admit it's hard to model the economy without understanding energy inputs and the feedback loops as we consume the planet's resources. Now, look, next time uh, we'll be looking at the Bretton Woods Agreement. We'll be a bit late celebrating its 75th anniversary, but we'll look at what was achieved in that meeting all those years ago and whether we're overdue another Bretton Woods now, particularly telling, as Donald Trump accuses various powers of currency manipulation. That's next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. See you then. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.